Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Tara Humphrey. I run an award-winning healthcare consultancy specialising in supporting primary care networks. I'm a facilitator. I am a mum of three. I have an MBA and I would class myself as a bit of an adventurer. And I absolutely love all things business, all things leadership, all things management. So I created this podcast for clinical and non-clinical colleagues working in the field of health and care and for those of you looking to develop your leadership skills. Every week we release an episode which focuses on the hard and soft skills required to lead in this increasingly complex environment as we move to delivering more integrated care. So let's jump into this week's episode. Hey, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. So in this episode, I had the absolute pleasure of interviewing Alex Matherson. Alex is the NHS Rainbow Program Manager for the LGBT Foundation. And I really wanted Alex to come on to give us a little bit of an introduction into the importance of the Rainbow Badge Scheme, what it means, what it represents. We talk about the importance of pronouns. We talk about performance allyship. Alex kind of talks us through some scenarios around how to address comments which are inappropriate and offensive and not for the workplace or not for any sort of environment, really. She helps us work through that and helps us to consider how we would approach those situations. Alex shares the health implications and workforce implications of not having an inclusive environment. And we also talk about how Alex supports and protects her own well-being. Uh, She's got quite an intense job, quite a busy home life. And I think that from a workforce perspective, I think it's important for me to keep asking our guests how they support themselves, how they protect themselves, how they manage their health and well-being. Because I think as caregivers, sometimes the healthcare professionals are the worst people at taking care of themselves. It's a really informative episode really important I learned loads so much and I am learning so much and I appreciate your time in listening to me and was very very honest around I think I have unintentionally been one of those people that have fallen into the performative allyship and if you listen I'll talk you through how that's happened it's not my intention and yeah, I will not be doing it again. So I really hope you learn something. I would love it if you share it. It's a really, really, really important episode. Enjoy. And I'll see you in the next episode. Hey, Alex, thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'll be honest, we're trying to get the sound quality out. we're trying to get the sound quality better <laughs> thank you for having me um and for persevering with the sound issues ah, 
Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. So our paths first crossed when I saw you speak at the NHS Confederation Conference, I think it was in Liverpool, and your session I made the most notes in. And afterwards, I was like, I want my lanyard, I want my badge, and I want her to come on the podcast. Uh, so thank you. I know you're busy. Oh, no, I appreciate it. And it was lovely when you came over and, and spoke to me afterwards. It's always nice when you've been so like speaking in front of lots of people and then you get a, a good reaction. So thank you. And you got asked to speak quite last minute, didn't you? Yes. Yeah. I stood in for a colleague of mine who was unfortunately unable to attend. So I think it was the night before that I got asked. So uh, hastily reading up on on what I was talking about. Oh, like a pro, like a pro. So would you be able to share, um, to get started, actually, if you share with our audience what it is that you do today for your work? Yeah, so I am the programme manager for the NHS Rainbow Badge Scheme. Um, it's a scheme around improving inclusivity for LGBTQ people who are patients and staff in the NHS. Okay. And a bit about you. Could you share three to five words which would describe your personality? Um, I'd say excitable, um, compassionate, um, committed. Yeah, probably those three. How would your, what do you think your partner would say? Oh, um, yeah, she'd definitely say compassionate. She says that I am to a fault um, and tells me off sometimes. Um, she would probably include some kind of word about being a nuisance in there because okay. <laughs> that's the word she uses the most to describe me um, and definitely committed as well, yeah. Excellent. And can you describe your home life? So I think you're married. Yes, uh, married yep. to my wife, Lucy. We've been together like forever. We've been um, married from when it first became legal for us to do so. Uh, we've got uh, two children, which it does feel weird saying it that way because one's just turned 20. So he's definitely not a child anymore. Um, and also a 16 year old, um, uh, uh, both of whom have um, neurodiversities. Uh, we've got a number of pets, so currently a dog, two cats and a load of fish. Um, but that changes as we've um, fostered different animals over um, the past as well. So pretty chaotic at home. And I hope you don't mind me asking, um, but what does it mean to have neurodiversity? Oh, um, Neurodiversities. So, yeah, so um, for example, like ADHD or um, autism, um, they're the specific ones that, that our uh, children have um, and sensory processing disorder. So just um, their brains process in a slightly different way to people who are classed as neurotypical. So our, our household routines and setups probably slightly different to most because of that. Cool, thank you. So one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on to the podcast is A, to it's quite a selfish endeavour, I want to learn, mm -hmm. and I'm sure that there'll be lots of listeners like me. Um, so what does the NHS badge, Rainbow Badge represent? So the scheme itself, the badge um, represents that the person who's wearing it is a safe person to talk to, um, specifically about matters that relate to um, sexual orientation um, or gender and trans status. Um, it should mean that the person wearing it has an understanding 
of the issues pertaining to that and is able to support and signpost someone um, around those issues. It has more recently, um, as we've seen with COVID, been kind of co-opted a little bit with the Thank You NHS badge. Uh, so we have been working to kind of re-establish the meaning behind it for people so that uh, especially those who are more vulnerable know exactly, you know, what it means and what it signifies. When, I suppose we don't know whose decision it was, but when the kind of the NHS rainbow came out around COVID, what was your initial reaction to that? So it's interesting because back then I wasn't working as part of this scheme. Um, and as a, a queer person who was working within, um, at the time working within an NHS commission service myself, um, I actually wasn't hugely bothered by it at first. I've got a lot of privilege because, you know, I'm in a very settled relationship. I'm very secure in my identity. Um, I don't feel a lot of concern these days around my identity. So for me, I was like, oh, double whammy, you know, it's queer and it's for the NHS. Um, but it was actually a conversation with my eldest that made me realise that that's not the case for everyone and just how much privilege I had in like my life around it. Because as a younger person, they mentioned that as a young queer person, it would mean that when they saw a professional, a clini clinician of any kind, they no longer would know what that badge signified. So if they had a rainbow flag on, was that, oh, yeah, you can talk about the makeup of your family and I'll understand and that'll be OK. Or you can talk about your identity and that's fine. Or is it, I'm just really proud to work in the NHS and I have no clue about anything related to LGBTQ matters and I might not necessarily be supportive. And that got me really thinking about my own privilege, um, how I'd kind of viewed it and actually... Are other people even aware that this is a concern? Um, so when the opportunity came up for the Rainbow Badge um, post, that actually formed part of my presentation when I applied for it. And what attracted you to the post? Um, yeah, what attracted you? You must have left a job. You saw this being, job being advertised. Why did you think, yes, that, that's for me? So at the time, I was working in a commission service um, for diabetic retinopathy. And um, we were the first service, um, eye screening service, to undergo a scheme called Pride in Practice, which is run by LGBT Foundation, around improving inclusivity uh, for LGBTQ uh, plus people in primary care. And that was my first kind of like professional contact with LGBT Foundation, I loved the scheme. I really loved what it was trying to achieve. And quite honestly, at that point, I decided I want to work for them. So um, I firstly started volunteering and then I started stalking the job page and looking <laughs> out for uh, opportunities to join their team because I thought what they were doing was so exciting and worthwhile. And um, like professionally and personally, I could see how important it was. Um, so, yeah, I started stalking the job page and this role came up and I was like, this is actually dream job material, like the opportunity to be a part of the change and to actually um, create meaningful change for LGBTQ people like me, like my family and friends. Um, and not just like on a small scale, but across the whole of NHS England, potentially. 
um it was just too good an opportunity to pass up so yeah i um i was i was waiting in the wings for such an opportunity and and jumped on it and then so what was your what were you what are you tasked to do and do you have a team of people supporting you yeah so initially it was to deliver a pilot scheme and the pilot was to create a criteria that would assess specifically NHS trusts around their existing levels of inclusion for LGBTQ plus people, and then help support them with knowing how to improve that. So we did a a pilot initially of 10 people, and um, uh, 10 trusts, sorry, not 10 people. Uh, So 10 trusts, and um, it was myself and one other person that was delivering that piece of work. but the scheme itself is um, a collaboration. So it's LGBT Foundation, Stonewall, um, Brighton and Hove Switchboard, GLAD, which is the LGBTQ Doctors and Dentists Association and um, LGBT Consortium. And the other person working on the pilot was based within Stonewall as an assessor. So we kind of like created this um, criteria, went out and tested it on 10 trusts, delivered the assessment process, uh, scored the trusts and then kind of like reviewed and refined the model from there. It was really successful. It was really well received. We had some fantastic like engagement from the initial 10 trusts who were really committed to help support the process in being refined and getting the most out of it. Um, And those trusts have remained really engaged, which has been really nice for us because they've been supporting the process. And then from that, we were able to extend the offer out. We got refinancing from NHS England and we've just finished supporting another 40 trusts through that process. So is the plan just, I take it the plan is to cover all trusts? Yeah, exactly. So um, the aim is to get all trusts through their initial assessment. And now we're also hitting the point where trusts are starting to think about and apply for reassessment. So those earlier trusts. So when we do the assessment, we give them a really in-depth report that details like all our findings, all the criteria and what they need to do to make meaningful change. So we create the action plan for them in its entirety so they know exactly what they need to do and they have that kind of um, benefit of expert guidance. And then from there, we also provide them with the resources that they might need uh, to link in with any that we can get that are free and readily available. We'll share um, just to reduce that kind of like cost implication for them. Um, or we might link them in with other organisations that can support the work they need to do. And then they they kind of go off and start the process. They have um, an assessor that will check in with them regularly just to make sure they're OK and that they're you know not needing any additional support. But then they'll get to a stage where they go, OK, we think we've ticked enough of these off. We'd like to go back in for reassessment. And we kind of start that ball rolling again and see where they're at now. In within those, so in total, so that's 50 trusts, did all trusts mm-hmm. come willingly or did you have to persuade them? So willingly that we've been oversubscribed at every recruitment um, opening. Um, we've currently got um, a considerable wait list of trusts wanting to join. 
so when we're looking at our next batch, we will be recruiting from that wait list specifically. Um, dependent on how many we are doing in the next stage, we might open up recruitment again to more trusts. Um, but as as the kind of like an ongoing basis, we have trusts contacting us wanting to engage and we just kind of at this stage go, right, we'll pop you on the waiting list ready for when we're doing the next wave. It sounds like a stupid question because three quarters of me thinks, well, of course, of course, any trust would want to do this. Of course, any organisation, large organisation that's got, you know, responsible for thousands, sometimes millions of patients and a really large workforce will want to be in as inclusive as possible for all the obvious reasons. But it's taken this initiative to get people thinking about it. What do you think is driving the willingness and your oversubscription is it just because nothing existed before and the offer is there or is do you think yeah is there something deeper why are people constantly approaching you i think it's a number of factors so um firstly it is the only scheme that covers all aspects um for a trust so it's the only one that looks at not only workforce but patients and clinical side of things. So it's it's one entity that can literally look at the entirety of trust life, which is definitely a benefit. I think partly um, we're getting a greater understanding across the board of the barriers to healthcare and the poorer experiences of healthcare for patients and staff. And part of that comes because we're actually doing more monitoring now. You know, we have an NHS information standard around looking at sexual orientation monitoring. It's not mandatory, so it's definitely not as um, well implicated as it could be. It's not rolled out as far as we would like to see. But where it is, it's really evident those differences that are occurring. Um, so there's an appetite from that. The staff survey records um, sexual orientation and now trans status across the NHS staff responding and again we're seeing a real deficit of experience there and seeing that you know LGBTQ staff members are experiencing uh, poorer workplace um, experiences they're having more instances of harassment bullying um, and actual direct violence from patients and their colleagues and managers so there's there's all these different factors that are kind of like combining together um, to make people see the issues that pertain to LGBTQ identities around healthcare and the need to change that. And then I guess there's also kind of like that cost implication when we think about patients. So if you think about someone who um, potentially delays treatment because they are concerned about how they'll be received, um, that person is then more likely to not be able to receive like a first line treatment. They're more likely to have a more progressed uh, condition. They're going to need the more expensive form of treatment. It's less likely to be as effective. And that in itself carries a cost implication. Um, so there's there's a number of different factors. And then I think that, you know, general awareness and people wanting to do better is is a big part in that as well, which is always like, wonderful to see when it's driven by that desire um, but we'll take it however it's driven one of the things um one of the many things you spoke about in your talk was and there was a panel of you guys of mm -hmm. 
you know when somebody says something which is perceived as a joke mm -hmm. but it's not it's offensive yeah but and, and and people know it's offensive but no one you know like you don't people don't know what to say provokes a variety of reactions um but yeah. not the one where people go Tara, what you did say there actually was really offensive, was really rude, was really derogatory. Um, how, what advice would you give to people when you're in that situation? You might be in a meeting and somebody just makes that, what they think is a joke or they're just blatantly being rude and disrespectful. How should we handle those situations? So that doesn't, because that bleeds into the culture of the organization. One person makes a joke, another person makes a joke, and then that's just the banter within you, within your team or division. How do we stamp that out? I think it's a really important point that you make there, first of all, and that it leads into the culture. And it absolutely does. Um, when it's allowed to slide, people view that as acceptable and the norm and people who might not otherwise have behaved in such a way will actually find that their barriers start eroding and they start behaving in that way as a you know desire to be accepted in the group and, and considered a part of it so it actually exacerbates those circumstances as well as creating them um i guess how you best respond to it first of all depends on your own position of safety and power if you are in a position of power, absolutely 100% call that out as loudly as you feel comfortable doing. It makes it really clear, not only to the person making such statements or jokes as they like to frame them, um, but also to anybody else who might be listening. And you don't know the identity of everyone listening. You might think you do, but not always. Um, so you might actually be speaking out and there's somebody with that identity that's being joked about listening and observing and seeing how you're responding and you've then without realizing it created um, an experience of psychological safety for them they know you're a safe person but equally it sets that immediate tone that that's not acceptable which is great if you've got the position of power and safety yeah. to be able to do that if you haven't you have a number of different choices and I guess it depends on the circumstances so you might choose to question it so in that, I'm sorry, I didn't get that kind of manner and ask them to explain it, which can make it can feel quite uncomfortable at first. But it's important to remember that's not your discomfort. That's them at having theirs at having to explain it. Um, and it makes them unpick it in front of you. Um, and especially if you're just like maintaining that stance of I don't get that. Was that supposed to be funny? Sorry, what's funny about it? you know, just probing questions, being quite clear. It might be that you just don't have the capacity, capability or, or position to be able to do that in the moment. And it's absolutely okay if you don't feel safe to do that. What I would say is find someone afterwards, find someone that you can raise that with and share it. If you work in the NHS, you're free to speak up. Guardians, the best people to speak to if you don't have a kind of like recognised safe colleague that you know you can talk to. Always raise these instances because it's not just you experiencing and hearing it, it's others. And, and like you said, it does, it creates that kind of environment and it makes it really toxic for people. So if you can't do something in the moment, 
don't think that that's your only option. Take it away and speak to someone afterwards. Okay, thank you. Um, one of the other things which I feel really embarrassed to say that I this was a new term from uh, the panel discussion and it was performative allyship. And I was like, I think I have done that, but not out of the intention was good. And a, a good example yeah. would be, so I've got members of my family that are gay. During Pride Month, I might talk about that a little bit more. I might show my uh, support for that on social media. But because I'd say they're, I'm exposed to all different sorts of people in my job um, and in my family, I don't, I'm not always... Um, I'm not always showing my support for it. I, I feel like I just am accepting and I just kind of crack on. And mm. but every now and again, I might be more vocal about something. And I was a bit like, oh, my God, that is performative ally. Is that performative allyship? So, yeah, what is performative allyship, firstly? So, I mean, you gave an excellent example of that, whereby, you know, you are... Uh, doing allyship you're you're being an ally but it is at specific times and it's not potentially consistent now I'm not saying that you're not consistent but when it happens in the example you gave say around pride month where that's the time when you talk about about LGBTQ issues that can be seen as performative because it's happening for a specific reason um to take it out of performative and to be actual you know active forms of allyship it needs to be something that you do in general. Yeah. Now, it probably is for you, but for a lot of people and actually, you know, a lot of maybe organisations and brands and things, it'll be very specifically tied into events and key calendar points and potentially even sales. Um, you know, and that's where we kind of get the term around pink washing and rainbow washing. Um So making that kind of like conscious thought around, am I talking about this because it's Pride Month? You know, am I talking about this purely because it's Trans Day of Remembrance? Do I share and uplift stories of joy for trans people? Or am I only talking about their experiences in this way? And similarly for, you know, LGBTQ people in general, do I talk about their concerns and support their concerns at publicly and vocally at other times and do I do it even when it's not in my benefit I want people to <laughs> rewind that bit I think it's so even like when you when you think of like the cat like the I'm sure that there are marketing teams you know like in all organizations mm-hmm. that are like it's this you know like it's black history month and it's the same yep it's, I would say I could put that in the same, but as a black woman, um, we get lots of mm. calls and lots of, you know, there's lots of activity. But I think the the only thing I would say is that I think people do that from a well-meaning place. I don't think, I, I think if you take out big organisations that are trying to commercialise, let's take we're healthcare um, if we take the NHS and yep. primary care and all of the other organizations that make up our um, NHS I think people do that because they generally they may they may be not aware and think do you know what I, you know that I, I just like people 
<laughs> you know, like I just want to be a good person. And actually, I didn't know that. So I'm going to share that. And I think people do yeah. it from a place. I'd like to think that people do it from a place of that's really good. That's heightened my awareness and I'm going to share it. And then they kind of drift back into their, you know, like their normal day to day. And everybody's got causes that are important to them. Um, but yeah, after that talk, I did think, I was like, oh my, like, oh my God, I absolutely. I think you're it. right about the intent. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about the intent. It is, you know, done positively. Ultimately, they are doing a positive act. It's what happens after. Yeah. So it's that thing of, you know, um, it's it's Pride Month or it's Black History Month and suddenly there's loads of voices clambering and they're sharing and there's all that uplifting and it's positive and it's supportive and it's great. But what happens when it's not that month and that momentum just stops? And then it's the same voices again and again. It's the people with lived experience and they're the ones trying to be heard the rest of the time. So there's no problem with like, yeah, I've just been prompted that this is an issue. I've just learned something new and I want to share that and make more people aware. I want to highlight this concern. What I would say is a way to do that without it being performative allyship and without it taking away from those who do the work day in and day out is to lift up the voices of those people. So, for example, you know, around Pride Month, maybe not writing your own diatribe about things, but, you know, sharing stuff from individuals with lived experience, sharing, you know, research around like, you know, you mentioned around Black History Month, you know, sharing the voices of people of colour, not like for me as a white person, not talking about my perception of racialized history, but sharing the voices of people who've experienced it is a more appropriate way. And then potentially... If you do, through using your privilege, turn people onto that issue. So, for example, you know, when we share the work of trans people um, around Trans Day of Remembrance, that's that's brilliant. That's a really good way to do it, because then those trans people potentially still have the followers and the people interacting with them and the support that you've managed to connect them with, as opposed to your followers, your supporters hearing you talk about that particular issue. And then as it's gone from your mind, it's gone from theirs. Does that kind of make sense? The yeah. way around broaching both of them. It does. It made me, and people may not like it when I say this, but it's my podcast. Um, when you, <laughs> when you said, you know, like, so if we take back history, um, There'll be lots of people, lots of people that were white, that are white, will share their their opinions, woes, concerns, issues, and I think it's yeah, it's. I think what I'm taking from this is to turn the spotlight away from me during those periods or it doesn't even have to be like in pride history it doesn't have to be pride month for me to do that but it's not my perception it's about sharing and amplifying and showing my support for that community versus look at me and look what I'm doing aren't I great exactly for this month of the year <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, thank you. Um, please could you share the importance of pronouns? What are they? Why do they matter? Should you ask people what their pronouns are? Um, so pronouns are like, it, for my example, my pronouns are she, her. They're the words that you can use to describe um, my gender in a way, but also it's how you'd reference me if you were talking about me without my name. You know, so you'd say, oh, I spoke to Alex today. She told me all about pronouns. Really simple. Everybody has some form of pronouns. Um, a lot of people at the moment are getting really angry around the whole like being asked to share their pronouns and talk about them, um, which I find really bizarre because it's it's just good manners. Um, sometimes it's really evident what someone's pronouns are. I think I'm fairly femme presenting. So people will often look at me and know that I use she, her, which is great because I do identify as female. Um, but there are many non-binary people, um, for example, who don't identify as female, but might look female. So they might be coded as female on appearance who might prefer different pronouns. So they could use like they, them pronouns or zizir pronouns, different um, gender neutral ones. Um, equally, this is something I see hugely in my own family. So I, I mentioned earlier, I'm married to a wonderful woman, Lucy. Um, Lucy is very mask presenting and is often referred to as he or him um, by people who don't know her. And she does not identify in that way at all. She's very much a woman. It's one of the many things I love about her. Um, and it can be really upsetting for her as, you know, um, a cisgender woman. So that's someone who isn't trans, who was born female and identifies as female to be, you know, incorrectly gendered so often. And that's someone who, who carries the privilege of being cis. Now, if she was a trans woman, that could be even more upsetting for her um, because it would, you know, remind her of her experiences um, of her transition and it invalidates her identity even further. So it's always great to ask people how they prefer to be referred to. Um, it's, it's just a nice sign of respect, I guess. Um, it means that you're not making any mistakes. Um, and someone can say, actually, I don't care. And a lot of people will say, like, I don't mind how you refer to me or I use a multiple of pronouns. Um, so some people might use she and they or he and they, for example. And some people might have preferences about how they're used. So I, I know people who use she, they pronouns and only like um, she and her to be used by other women. Okay. Um, they, them is to be used by anybody who isn't identifying as a woman, as an example. Okay, thank you. So one thing I just wanted to go back on is, you mentioned pride in practice. So in my day to day, I'm in primary care. Um, does the work, do you, does your kind of directorate still touch pride in practice? Or is it like, you know, like you split into different kind of departments, different areas? Yeah, they're different um, teams. So Pride in Practice um, focuses on primary care. So they support um, any kind of primary care environment, but specifically um, GP practices, ophthalmology, dentists and pharmacy. Um, and then the um, NHS Rainbow Badge Assessment Scheme is specific to NHS trusts. 
Um, and because of the difference in size and nature, they are very different in the um, criteria. Um, but the kind of overarching theme of the two schemes is very similar in their intent. It's just how it's handled is, you know, needs to be separate and different. Um, but the actual rainbow badge original scheme, the wearing of the badge, can be anyone who works within a clinical or a healthcare environment, even they don't need to be clinical themselves, um, but anyone who works in that environment and wants to be seen as supportive. So you could be in a primary care environment and wear the rainbow badge. We have lots of GPs, for example, that do, um, but the actual schemes are, are separate. And then the other question I was just thinking, and you did mention, I suppose, the consequence and the, you know, why are people wanting to get the assessment and the benefits that it has to health outcomes? But can you share some examples from a workforce perspective? So we talk about health outcomes and it being there is a cost implication um, and people don't get the treatments when they uh, need to. But from a, a workplace conf, uh, workplace situation, trusts have got thousands, hundreds of thousands of staff. Um, what benefit yeah. is learning about this really important topic resulting in from a workforce perspective well i mean first of all like trusts do have a massive workforce and within that workforce they will have and they do have lgbtq staff um and we know that those staff are having worse experiences than their cisgender or heterosexual colleagues we can see that um, it's shown in the national uh, staff survey that's done annually. The most recent one had trans status as a question. So we are now finally able to actually um, see the experiences for trans people um, within that. And, and they are considerably worse. Um, so we can see that um, even from a, if we take the worst examples of what a staff member might experience, which is, um, physical violence. If you look at physical violence from a line manager, which should be an absolute never, like it just shouldn't happen. Um, trans staff are considerably more likely to experience that than any other group of staff. Um, and, and really significantly so. Um, so I think the national figure was around 6% of trans staff have experienced such violence from their line manager. And it's less than 1% for cisgender staff. And and like I say, like, it just should be never, shouldn't it? I'm like, it just shouldn't happen. It's horrendous. Yeah. And then you think that, you know, when the um, Rainbow Badge scheme was created, one of the key reasons for creating the original scheme, the wearing of the badge, was the awareness that 23% of healthcare staff had witnessed their colleagues behaving in a way that was anti-LGBT. So, you know, practically a quarter of staff have seen this happen in their workplace. Um, and we're in a staffing crisis within the NHS. You know, we've got an ageing staffing population. We've got so many different contributing factors towards, you know, reduced staff retention. Actually, what we need to be doing is supporting our people, keeping them in post, keeping them happy, keeping them safe, keeping them, you know, engaged in the job that they're doing. And surely like the first step in that is making sure that they're physically and mentally safe in their role. So 
engaging with a scheme such as this, first of all, it gives opportunities to educate those people that might be potentially creating these problems. But also it, it again shows that the trust is a safe place, that it's trying to make those changes and lets the workforce know that, you know, if you're perpetrating that kind of behaviour, it's not acceptable and we won't tolerate it. And we're taking steps around that. And if you have experienced or could be likely to experience it, we won't take it. We'll support you. We'll be there. And these are the actual steps that we're undertaking. So it's, you know, it's putting your money where your mouth is. Although, I guess, not 100% because you don't pay for the scheme as yeah. a trust. But it's it's walking the walk. And I suppose from your perspective, you can see the good work, but there'll be people down on the ground that say, yes, our trust is part of that scheme, but I don't feel safe. Or I've seen, you know, inappropriate behaviour. I've raised it to my line manager. I've spoken to my freedom to speak up guardian and actually nothing has changed. Yeah, absolutely. And part of our assessment process is we have a staff survey separate to the national staff survey. And it's focusing on um, individuals um, experiences, but also their confidence and competence in supporting LGBTQ patients and colleagues. And we do see a real kind of like cross section of responses on that. So we will get people that will share this happened to me. This was really bad. This hasn't been handled appropriately. Um, you know, I raised it to a manager and it wasn't responded to. Or it was ignored. And then people who are showing you exactly the kind of thing that you're fighting against. So the people that are this isn't necessary. It doesn't matter what someone's sexual orientation is. I'm going to give them the best possible care whatsoever. Um, this is pandering. You know, we get some quite negative comments in there. And as weird as it sounds, it's a really great opportunity for us in the scheme to be able to highlight to the trust and to those people that are change makers that are trying exactly what's going on. And you can actually say so you can tie that into the national survey results and be able to show them what's happening on the ground. And it's a slow process. It's not going to change overnight. Um, but if a trust has got onto the scheme, then they've not only expressed an interest um, and been assessed as, you know, act actively engaged, but they've got an executive sponsor. That's okay. part of our requirements. So they've got someone at a senior level who's committing to making those changes. Um, and we're realistic. This is the NHS. Things don't change overnight. It will be a slow process. Um, but the key point is there that there is people at the top driving for this change to happen for a trust to be engaged. And so bit by bit, it will happen. And it's going to happen in a way that is done correctly, because that's the other thing. Sometimes you see um, well-intentioned attempts um that aren't well informed attempts so they sometimes can make things worse so they can be poorly worded and things like that but actually these trusts that are engaging in the scheme are going to get really good support and advice and they will be on that journey to improvement how quick it is will depend on how bad things are in the trust to start with um and how confident people make that kind of like decision making process so going back to the beginning of this interview, you've got a busy home life, you've got 
a huge job and a really, really important job. How do you manage your own well-being and resilience when you hear probably heartbreaking stories, you see them? How do you then go home and be with your family and try to relax? It is, um, I think for a lot of us working in inclusion, it is uh, an ongoing kind of thing that's difficult to do sometimes to shut off and just be like normal with things. Um, Because yeah, like you say, we do read some hard stuff and and some really moving stories that can really resonate with us. Um, And we're all doing this work because we want to make a change. And sometimes it can be frustrating when it's not quick enough. Um, I love crafting personally. Crafting is like my form of mindfulness. Um, It's uh, nice when you feel like things are moving really slowly to do a task that you can have like a start and an end to. And at the end of it, you've achieved and created something. Um, So I do I do a lot of different crafting. I've recently taken up needle felting, which I always thought was a really, really twee activity because like I didn't know much about it. Um, and actually I've discovered that it's basically stabbing wool a lot with a needle. <laughs> um, so that's quite cool. I'm quite enjoying that. It's very therapeutic <laughs> and it's quite quick to create something. Um, so yeah, that's, um, that's, that's been my new, uh, joyous activity. Um, plus when you've got a sharp needle in your hand, people leave you alone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the other thing is just like being really vocal and aware of what I'm experiencing. I've got a great team around me from like my line manager to my co-workers. And we quite often will just be like, OK, so here, here's something I need to vent about and give each other that level of support um, to be able to just like let it go. And lots of people, when people are listening to a podcast, some people will be sitting down but a lot of people will be multitasking and they might be washing up they might be gone for a run they might be taking the dog for a walk come to the end of the interview if they were only going to remember one thing what would you want that one thing to be oh it's always hard to come up with one solitary thing from all of the stuff that i we know do. we want but them we, to remember everything I, but they won't yeah <laughs> i would say for me the most important thing is that y- you as an individual can make things better for LGBTQ people. Um, And it can be as simple as um, speaking out when someone says something offensive or sharing the voices of an LGBTQ person or highlighting such schemes. But you as an individual can make that change. It can start with you. So if people want to find out more about the LGBT Foundation, where should they go? Uh, they can go to our website, um, which is very simply lgbt.foundation. Um, and we've got links to all the work that we do, both with communities and different organisations, um, such as the NHS, on there. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. so much for joining us if you like what you hear I would absolutely love it if you left us an iTunes rating and five star review 
I know many of you give us a shout out on social media, which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast. So please come and find us on Twitter at THC Primary Care, on Instagram and on LinkedIn. Just look for Tara Humphrey. And if you're not subscribed to our newsletter, please do. You get to hear more insights, more confessions, some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week. So click on join the newsletter in the show notes and I will see you in the next episode. 